Good morning. Well, 40 years ago, on October, uh, August the 19th, almost forgot it, I walked down a very long aisle in a long white dress to meet the man I could not wait to marry. And there, there we are, that's my dad. And uh, that smile on my face is not just a happy smile. That smile is a confident smile. I felt confident walking down that aisle because I believed in something. I believed in my bridegroom and I believed in us. And I believed that the journey we were about to take was gonna be worth the commitment we were about to make. And truly that belief and that commitment has determined the rest of my life. And you know, we have lived happily ever after. <laughs> why, why are you laughing? Isn't it supposed to be that way? That's what I naively thought when I walked down the aisle at age 21. I thought that if we loved God and we loved each other, then life should just be smooth sailing. But I soon discovered that life is full of twists and turns and ups and downs and lots of just plain old ordinary days in between. But along the way, I have learned three important lessons. One, life is not a fairy tale. Two, it really matters who you journey through life with. And three, you never really know a person until you've traveled with them a while. <laughs> that is true in marriage, and that is true in your relationship with God. And I have to admit that I've gotten tripped up from time to time when I thought that life with God should be happily ever after. You know, if he loves me like he says he does, if he's as powerful as he says he is, then why do the circumstances in my life sometimes seem to contradict that? I bet you have wondered that too. And yet, if you have journeyed with God for very long, you have discovered that it is in the journey, especially in the dark places, that you have come to know God in ways you would never have known Him otherwise. And that's exactly why God longs to journey through life with each one of us, because He knows that life, this side of heaven, is no fairy tale. He never promised it would be. But in Jesus Christ, He offers us an invitation come along with me, come do life with me. And although Jesus invites us, he doesn't force himself on us, he waits for us to invite him. And every journey starts somewhere. And so this morning, we're gonna start at the beginning with faith. The lesson um, title today is I Believe in God. So we're gonna ask and answer three questions with regard to our faith. First of all, what do we mean when we say we believe in God? Secondly, why do we believe or why should we? And third, how? How do we take that next step on our faith journey and live like we believe? So that's where we're going. What do we believe, why do we believe it, and how do we live it out? Simple, right? <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I started writing this Bible study about a year ago. But when I got my hard copy in, in August, I, I worked through all the lessons, all the questions, just like you do. And this week when I got to question two, what do you mean when you say you believe in God? It stumped me. <laughs> I started writing all these things I believe about God until I realized, wait a minute, that wasn't the question. The question wasn't, what do you believe about God? But what do you even mean when you say that? 
It's a philosophical question as well as a theological one, but it has very practical implications. So let's think through some of the ways that we exercise faith every day in ordinary ways. So maybe you get sick and you go to the doctor because you believe that he or she can help to make you well. And you fill that prescription and you take that medication because you trust that it's gonna kill that bacteria or it's gonna ease your pain or whatever it is that it's for. Uh, maybe it's a cloudy day. So you check your weather app and you choose your clothes and your activities accordingly. That is, if you trust your weather app, which is a big if most of the time. <laughs> um, when we woke up this morning, we weren't surprised, were we? We totally believed that the sun was going to come up and we were going to open our bleary eyes and crawl out of bed. That's why we have calendars and make plans and schedule appointments, and you get the point. We live what we believe every single day. It's a little trickier when we talk about living out our belief in God because that implies not just a set of beliefs, but it implies some sort of a relationship. Because God is a personal, relational God. And as you know, relationships are not as predictable as the sun coming up in the morning. Well, I think it's interesting that in both the Old and the New Testaments, marriage is the metaphor that is often used to describe our relationship with God. God's relationship with his people, where God is the bridegroom and his people are the bride. It's the most intimate of relationships that implies commitment and faithfulness and longevity. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 62 was foretelling a future day of joy for God's people Israel when he wrote these words. He said, never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be called the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. Then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. I learned in my research that when the Apostles' Creed was written, the word creed literally meant, I give my heart to. And so when our early ancestors in the faith wrote and recited the words, I believe in God, what they meant was, I am giving my heart to him as a bride to a bridegroom. I'm all in, I'm fully committed for the long haul. That's because faith has always been about a journey with God through life that begins with a commitment. Just like a marriage begins with a vow to live together, to love one another through all of life's circumstances and to forsake all others for as long as you both shall live. And it's that commitment then that launches the new bride and groom into their whole new life, right? When we say, I believe in God, we're saying it's way more than intellectual agreement with religious doctrines. And it's way more than spiritual feelings that ebb and flow. It means you are choosing God as your primary companion and guide in life. It's a commitment to forsake all other gods, all lesser gods, those things that we tend to rely on to fulfill our deepest longings and to give us security and hope and um, purpose as we navigate the terrain of life. So I want us to look at some examples of people who have done 
that. Obviously, there's many such people in the scriptures who have committed themselves to God, heroes and martyrs. But today, I wanted to introduce you to some other people in church history, people in the fourth century who obviously never saw Jesus with their eyes, but who believed as we do by faith. So I told you last week about the Emperor Constantine, how he called together bishops from all over the Roman Empire to gather together in the ancient city of Nicaea in order to address a controversy that had to do with the nature of Jesus. It was called the Arian controversy because there was a man named Arius who was going around teaching that Jesus was a God, but he wasn't the God. And I wanna tell you about the bishops who gathered there to discuss that question. And I owe this information to the late Nabil Qureshi's book, No God But One, Allah or Jesus. And, and he says that of the 1,800 bishops that were invited, only 318 were able to attend. Some of them were just too old, but some of them were too disabled from the horrific persecutions they had suffered under the previous emperor, Diocletian who in the year A.D. 303 ordered that all churches be destroyed and all scriptures be burned and all people who would not sacrifice to the Roman gods be tortured. The bishops who were able to attend were described as an assembly of martyrs. Sorry, I hope I can get through this. Um, one man, one man lost both the use of both of his hands because of irreparable nerve damage caused by the application of a red hot iron. Others had had their eyes gouged out and their limbs dismembered. These men lived through the greatest persecution the church has ever known, suffering torture and mutilation rather than deny their faith in Christ. And we have the Nicene Creed today because they braved that journey to confirm in no uncertain terms that Jesus is not a God, he is the God. The God the apostle John described as God in flesh who dwelt among us. The God who said, the one who said, I and the Father are one. When those martyrs wrote and recited the first line of the Nicene Creed, we believe in one God, they weren't just saying we believe it up here. They were saying we have given our life to him. We've given our hearts, our bodies to him. They were all in for the long haul. And their example, as well as the changed lives and the martyrdom of the apostles themselves, are the greatest apologetic for the validity of the Christian faith that I can ever think of. But why, we ask? Why did they believe so strongly? How is it that the martyrs in the Old and the New Testaments and the early church and even up to today, you know Christians are being persecuted every day today. How can they stay the course? How is it that they were able to make such an all-in commitment? And how can we, why should we make such a profession of faith? Well, the short answer is because it makes sense. We can commit ourselves fully to God because he has committed himself fully to us. And we have seen that all throughout the human story. God um, is determined, it is the determined resolve of his heart to provide for our flourishing, for our well-being. He loves us. 
If you were in our Bible study last spring, we went through the biblical story of God's loving pursuit of us, right? And I wanna briefly capture some of the highlights of that with you this morning because it's important. We learned in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created a beautiful and perfectly ordered world. And then he created Adam and Eve in his own image to inhabit that world and to flourish in it and to be the cause of the flourishing of everything else he created. And Psalm 8 and Romans 1 teaches that if you want to know what God is like, open your eyes and take a long and thoughtful look around you because God is revealing himself every single day through his creation. His majesty, his power, his creativity, his genius, his sense of humor, his attention to detail, all of it is on full display every day. But God doesn't just want us to know that he created everything. He wants us to know him, the creator of everything. And so God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And although sin marred that relationship, God in his mercy and his great love made a way through sacrifice for their sins to be forgiven and the relationship restored. Later in the human story, God appeared to a man named Abraham and made him some promises. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I'm going to give you a land that your descendants will inherit and inhabit. And Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on the earth will be blessed. It was a reference, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Later still, when God's people, the descendants of Abraham, were enslaved in Egypt, God appeared to Moses and revealed his name, the great I am, the one who eternally exists and causes all other things to exist. And God appointed Moses, who was a type of Christ, to lead his people out of their bondage and into the bountiful land that God had promised to them. And God traveled with them on their journey. His presence was visible in the pillar of cloud by day, in the pillar of fire by night. And afterwards, God met them on Mount Sinai, and he let them hear his voice and see his presence in the cloud that covered the mountain. And there, that is where he gave them his gracious laws by which they would flourish in the land if they would obey. And because they were his people, God said, I'm going to dwell among you in the most holy place of the tabernacle that he instructed them to build as a place of worship where they could come and offer their sacrifices and their prayers. And when that tabernacle was finished, the visible glory of God's presence called the Shekinah filled that place and they saw it with their own eyes. But God wanted more than just religious rituals carried out in that tabernacle. He wanted more than slavish obedience to his righteous laws. He wanted their love. And so he gave them what would become their creed. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strengths. The message translates it this way. Love him with all you've got. Love him with all that's in you. It's an appeal to an all-in, committed, loving relationship rather than a fair-weather, obligatory one. And it made sense that they should respond to God that way because he had shown up for them in tangible ways to demonstrate his love and his commitment to their welfare. 
He had rescued them, traveled with them, appeared to them, spoken to them, and dwelled with them in the land he had promised them. What more did they need or want in order to reciprocate his love? And yet, human nature being what it is, and we totally get it, they failed to love God exclusively. They turned away to the lesser gods of the surrounding cultures, and the result was disastrous. Although God appealed to them time and time again through his prophets to turn back to him, they did not. And so eventually they were conquered by their enemies and exiled for 70 years. But eventually, when the right time came, God revealed himself completely in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. How do you imagine the face of Jesus? The Gospels record many stories of Jesus traveling around the countryside, healing and helping people in his compassion but also celebrating with them at their parties. He even attended the parties of sinners. We know he attended at least one wedding, and I know that if there was dancing there, he danced. And I'm pretty sure he drank some of that wine that he so abundantly provided. In other words, he was fully and joyfully engaged with his people. And he didn't turn anyone away. One day, some disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and they said, why don't your disciples fast like we do and like the Pharisees do? In other words, why don't y'all act more spiritual? And this is what Jesus said. You cannot make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But those days are coming when the bridegroom is taken from them. At that time, they will fast. In other words, Jesus said, I am the bridegroom. To be present with me is to be full of joy and gladness. Every single gospel references Jesus as the bridegroom who came to help and to heal and to celebrate with his people for a while, but who would eventually lay down his life for the sake of his bride. Jesus made an all-in commitment to us. He gave his heart, his soul, his mind, his body, first to God, and then to us, his bride. Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. Because the joy of the bridegroom is to be forever united with his bride. That's what kept him on the cross. Our sins had separated us from God, but Jesus took our sin, our guilt, our shame, and took the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and the relationship restored. And the final chapters of the Bible depict the culmination of the human story as a wedding feast where the bride is the church dressed in white and the bridegroom is the Lamb of God who took away her sins. We can commit ourselves fully to God, which is what it means to believe, because he has committed himself fully to us. The only question now is how? How do we live like we believe? Especially when you get to those hard places in life and you wonder if God is still with you and, and you wonder why things are happening the way they are. 
Recently, I, I traveled to Austin with my sister to visit our two sons who both live there. And she and I have both traveled to Austin separately a lot of times. I travel from Irving and she travels from Dallas. But that day I picked her up at her house and I set the Austin address in my GPA, uh, GPS system and off we went. And um, I need to tell you that the GPS system I use is Waze. So how many of you use Waze? Oh, all of you should. It's just genius. I love it. <laughs> it was developed in Israel. And um, somehow Waze can see all of the traffic on all the possible routes you might take from point A to point B. And it will steer you around the least, to the least trafficked area and get you to your destination in the best possible time. It's amazing. But we hadn't got out of my sister's driveway before she was saying about the route we were taking. This makes no sense. I've never gone this way. And she dug in her phone, get her phone out, and, you know, turn on Google Maps and everything. She was really agitated. She kept saying, this makes no sense. But I was very calm because I have learned to trust Waze. <laughs> I told my sister, Waze is kind of like God. She says, all-seeing, all-knowing one, and you just got to trust her. And I say her because it's a female voice, you know, turn left. In five miles, exit right. Um, sometimes traffic is unavoidable, even for her. But you have to trust that the, the traffic you're encountering on this route is way better than the traffic you might be encountering on that route. Even though you'll never know, you just got to trust her. It's all about faith, sister. And she says, does Waze ever mess up? And I said, well, unlike God, she does mess up sometimes. And so my sister says, well, I'm going to keep Google Maps on just in case. This is a backup. And I said, no, it doesn't work that way. Andy and I try it. <laughs> you can't keep two different apps going at the same time. Because at some point, you're going to have to decide. And you might cause a wreck if you can't decide. You got to decide. Are you following Waze? Or are you following Google? You got to choose your compass and stick with it. What is our compass? It is, it is God's word. And we got to stick with it. Our life's going to get real confusing. Abraham, the patriarch of our faith, chose God's word as his compass and he stuck with it. We looked at Romans 4 in our lesson this week, and I want to go there with you now, but just a little more background about Abraham first. You may already know, Abraham was 75 years old when God called him to go on a journey of faith with him. God told Abraham, leave your country, leave your family, and go to a place I'm going to show you. And Abraham did. It was a big commitment for him to leave everything and go with God, but he did it. It wasn't until he got to the land of Canaan that God said, this is it. This is the land that I promised you. This is where your descendants are going to live. But life with God in the land of Canaan was not a fairy tale. In fact, not too long after he got there, there was a famine in the land. And so Abraham went to Egypt for a while, and he had a rather unpleasant experience there, as did his wife Sarah. Abraham's faith was tested over and over again, and sometimes he stumbled in his faith. He, he messed up big time, sometimes just like we do, and yet God was faithful to his promise. He didn't give up on Abraham, and through the years, through all the trials and triumphs, 
Abraham developed a relationship with God such that Abraham became known as God's friend. And all along the way, God continued to remind him of his promises. And Abraham believed God. That was the basis of his relationship with God. Not anything good or bad, right or wrong that he, is, that he had done, but he believed God. The amazing thing about his faith was that all of God's promises hinged on Abraham having descendants. And that was trouble because Sarah had always been infertile. And the years had gone by and Abraham and Sarah were both too old to conceive a child. And this is where we pick it up in Romans 4. So let's read it again up, up on the screens. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Translation, Abraham could no longer perform. <laughs> and even if he could, Sarah's womb was also dead. Translation, she's 90 years old. She's way past menopause. It is a physical impossibility for Abraham and Sarah to conceive a child. Got it? Yet, it says, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Abraham believed a God who had shown up in his life and given his word, his promise. And that promise was Abraham's compass even when everything in his life contradicted it. And it gave him hope to stick with it over the long haul, 25 years to be exact. Abraham teaches us that when you combine the word of God with belief as we've defined it, an unwavering commitment, then you have real hope. Not wishful thinking, true conviction that what God has said, he will do. What God has said is true, is true. And where there is hope, there is life transformation. There is peace because you're not a, you are no longer bound up in anxiety or despair. Hope keeps you moving forward, taking the next step and the next step and the next until your faith is no longer faith, it is sight. Abraham held his own son in his aged arms. When life makes no sense, you check your compass and you commit to it. You reorient yourself around the truth of God's word and you stay laser focused on it and you keep going. Learning to journey with God by faith is like learning anything else. You learn it by doing it, not by theorizing about it. Yeah, you watch over, you watch others, you, you learn from others, but eventually you got to do it yourself. And so you learn to love by loving. You learn patience by practicing it. You learn perseverance by perseverance. And you learn to believe by believing what God says is true and living like you believe it. Living out what you believe in. But it's not a blind leap, is it, of faith? God has made himself known. 
To say yes to God, yes to faith, is to say no to other things. No to doubt, no to fear, no to insecurity, no to self-sufficiency or any other God you may be um, leaning on to guide you through life. It matters who you walk through life with because this life is not a fairy tale. Some of you need to trust in God for the first time this morning. Maybe you've been waiting until you get all your questions answered, but you know it doesn't work that way because it doesn't make sense to think that we can fit an infinite God inside the confines of our finite human brains. And secondly, you can't really know a person until you've traveled a while with them. But you do know enough about God to take the first step with him. God has revealed himself to you in creation, in the human story, in his word, and ultimately in the face of Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't you invite him to do life with you? No one knows you or loves you like Jesus does, and he demonstrated that for you on the cross. And he promises to never leave you or forsake you, and that's a promise no one else can make. Some of you have walked with God for many years, but maybe you need to make a fresh commitment to keep walking with him by faith. Maybe you're feeling anxious or insecure about your future. Check your compass and commit to it. What does God's word say? Joshua 1.8, I am with you wherever you go. Romans 8.28, I am working all things together for your good. There are so many promises of God's presence and his provision. Learn them, rehearse them, recite them over and over again. Ask yourself, how would my life change if I lived like I believed this? Maybe you're feeling like God couldn't love you. Maybe you feel like your faith is too weak to believe that. Maybe you feel like you are too unworthy. I would like to ask you to listen to a song now. And with these, we're gonna close our time together. Um, this song, or it's this portion of our time together, this song is called You Say by Lauren Daigle. And what I love about this song is that she is choosing to believe what God says is true rather than what the voice inside her head is saying. All kinds of voices run around in our head sometimes, right? But it's not God's voice. Whatever your particular circumstances are this morning, as you listen to this song, will you think about what it would look like in your life to focus on what God says is true and then live like you believe it? And then we'll have a few minutes in our groups to talk about that. So um, let's listen to it. I believe in God. Translation. I am fully committed to God because he is fully committed to me. And I'm going to believe what he says is true and live what I believe with his help. We have a few minutes left. I'd like you to turn into your groups and um, answer um, the two questions that'll be up on your screen. And the questions are these, what would it look like in your present circumstances to live what God says is true? And then how do you think your life would change if you lived that way?